Hello and welcome to Resporting, a place where we're going to celebrate and savour sporting moments here and into the future while we're all sitting through this COVID experience. I'm Jen Saderhelm. With me is Brent Ford. Brent, hello. G'day, Jen. Brent and I have been long-time sports mates. I was telling someone the other day of the experience of working with you over many years where you'd come into work... And we didn't, we didn't actually specifically work together, but you'd make a beeline for me. And when you made a beeline for me, I knew usually... You knew you were in trouble because I was probably going to, to give you some sporting fact or something that you didn't really need to know. But usually, like, I'd be like, what happened yesterday? Okay, it's, it's NRL. No, it's this. And, and it's been a great part of a long-standing friendship was that we could kind of just tune off to everything else and then yep. talk sports and everyone would just be like, I just leave those two alone. Also, as part of this program, we have Nathan Letts, who's going to be our cricket commentator, and Eddie Williams, who will step by shortly, who'll be talking AFL with us. So, where do we start today? Let's we'll start with a little bit of NRL. Some news that's come through relatively recently is that the two boys, the two Bulldogs boys, have had their contracts not just uh, postponed, it's not yeah. just thought about later, it's, it's been terminated, which has got big implications for them in terms of earning money from here on in. Yeah, it's a big decision from the Bulldogs. Uh, Jaden Ockenbore and Corey Hawira-Naira both had their contracts deregistered uh, for their behaviour, of course. We don't know what is going to happen, the implications going forward from that, but we know that they've both been issued show courses. That happened last month, and a lot of people thought that this might occur and I guess with what's happening with the the stand down of players and no matches being paid or played I think this is something that had to happen. Mm. Also this week there's obviously been a lot of news about what's going to happen financially. Magically money appeared in the NRL. I don't want to say magically but 40 million dollars was a lot of money to just pop up all of a sudden to rescue the game. Well that's something that I always have to have a laugh at every time I hear Peter Volandis talk or Todd Greenberg (laughs) talk. I wish I could find 40 million dollars out of the back pocket of my trousers (laughs) but you have to wonder whether or not this is 40 million that's currently there or whether it's something that they think is going to be something along the pipeline. I mean, we know that they want to have, I suppose July 1 is what they're targeting for the season to to kickstart again. I don't know whether that's going to magically appear. So Mm. what we predict and what we hope, as we know, every situation is moving so quickly. I don't think it's uh, as fluid as people think. It's it's changing all the time. I have a feeling that July 1 could happen. But if under the stipulations that's been said, that Vlanders has said about that uh, it'll be played to no crowds, that could work. But then we still have the issue of the Warriors. Well, we do. And then, so do they come back? So you'd have to you'd have to think of it, what is it, a 14-day period when they travel across. So they come and say they set them up in Queensland. Do we then put the players back into self-isolation? We know that they're not currently isolated. I saw a couple of players walking around the lake recently. So... All, of course, uh, doing their social distancing, as is the case. But it's very strange to think that, okay, if we want the season to actually get up and running, we need to do this, this, this and this. And it has to happen by this point. I mean, we're now in early April. So what's that two months that they've got to work this out and Mm. get it done? There was talk earlier about getting the guys fit again which is hard when they're in isolation and they can't do their normal routines. And, I mean, you know as well as I do, you get a lot fitter when when you're with a team or when you've got someone who's pressing you to do things, which you can't do. And motivation as well. There's no no motivation uh, for these players to actually train as hard as they can. There's no gyms that are open at the moment. And if they would be using, say, for example, the Raiders were using their centre of excellence, you'd be allowed two people in at a time. I don't even know if they can use their centre of excellence. I mean, that raises another question of whether or not we've seen other football clubs hand their gym out to other players to use. So you've got Mm. squat racks going to players' houses, you've got dumbbells and barbells and the like going to others, you've got medicine balls going to other people's houses. It's just a personal preference for what the players really like. Mm, I it's hadn't even strange. thought about it. I thought they'd just shut the Centre of Excellence down for the time being, which is a shame because it's yeah. glorious and I'd like to try that hydrobarbaric chamber or whatever it's called. <laughs> yeah, the cryo chamber. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe you sit in that for an hour and time 
quickens on the outside. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe. It's very strange. Wouldn't it be amazing if there was the cure to the coronavirus? All these players went, well, that's why we never got it. We've got this hydro, whatever. What, what? <laughs> the, the hydrotherapy, <laughs> the cryogenic chambers. Yeah. Well, let's talk more on money. I was pleased to see that when they talked about the the cost-cutting to all the teams, all the teams unanimously supported the rescue package, which meant that each team was going to get $2.5 million. This is one of the good things about the salary cap is that you don't have certain teams that have truckloads of money who would have kicked up more of a stink. So because they're all on a level playing field, accepting this amount of money is a good thing. However... Let's talk about Todd Greenberg because not everyone's happy with the 25% pay cut he has taken of his $1.5 apparently million dollar salary. Well, this is the interesting point and I know that someone like Joey Leilua has been quite vocal about the pay cut and he said he didn't want to take a pay cut initially just been married I can understand why he wouldn't want to he's got a family to look after but in these sort of circumstances you have to do what's good for the game and everyone is is doing their own bit one could argue whether or not Todd Greenberg I think he's earning his salary what he's doing would be quite stressful but of course he could show leadership in in taking a further cut and actually make sure that the game survives is 25% adequate maybe for now but further down the course, it gives enough room for more cuts. But, I mean, you look at it, that's nearly nearly a quarter of a team's salary. It is. In a way. And, look, I, I appreciate what you just said, that Greenberg, I also feel, has been doing a really good job in difficult circumstances. But a million bucks? Well, this is the whole thing. You could say that, yep. Yeah, Anyone, and if you're asking players that are on, you know, 600, 700, even a million dollars to to lose the majority of their salary, then you as a CEO could take that leadership and and say, well, look, 80% of my salary, I'm going to make sure that the game survives. So you could look at it two different ways, and I think that he could probably justify that he is deserving of the money that he's still getting. Mm. But on the flip side, when you see people that millions of people lining up for Centrelink, when you see the number of people that are literally just scraping by at the moment to to get through life and and someone's still earning a million dollars, then you can sort of think, well, hang on, are you really that in touch with the fans of the game or the the players that you also try and and look after as well? I had read also that it was 25% cut in all exec salaries. See, so, that's maybe not enough. Uh, well, I think if the players are taking, you know, 50% or more than 50%, then perhaps... And that's who people come to see. People yeah. don't go to the, the football to see Todd Greenberg. So <laughs> while he's got the hard decision of trying to keep the game afloat, yeah. he's not the reason why that money is there in the first place. Mm. So I think that NRL will survive, but I'm not so sure about rugby union. I'm really worried about Rugby Union. Yeah, me too. And there's a few steps in the process. For those of you who don't follow, last year, so before any of this started, Rugby Australia had lost more than $9 million. And then this year they're looking at losses of more than $120 million is the estimate for this year. It's crazy. It is. And the most difficult thing for me to resign myself to with Rugby Union is that I think everybody could see last year the game was struggling. Me, who's not an avid follower yep. of rugby, I think anyone could see. So when Foxtel went to Rugby Union and said, yeah, we paid you, I think it was $37 million for their previous yeah, contract, like that, yeah. and then said, okay, we're on board for $20 million this year, I can't understand why Raylan Castle turned that down. Well, they obviously seem to think that there was going to be a better deal somewhere along the way, but there isn't. No. And this is the this is the stark reality that rugby faces in Australia at the moment. And when you're paying out undisclosed figures to a certain rugby union player who's no longer playing here in Australia, then you really have to take whatever money you can get. And I think being someone who played rugby union a couple of years ago at the grassroots level, there's sort of a real disconnect between that elite level of rugby union and the grassroots level of rugby union. And I don't know why it is, but for me playing AFL, you don't feel that disconnect at that 
level playing Aussie rules, you don't feel the disconnect between the AFL and then the grassroots level competition where in rugby it seems like there's a real elitism about those who are playing at the top level and those who are playing the grassroots don't really then go and watch the Brumbies. They don't Mm. really watch rugby union outside of playing it. It's For me, I always described it as a sport that you really enjoyed playing, Mm. but it's not as fun to watch. Well, I find that really interesting that you say that because I got some stats on viewing figures, right? Yeah. And when I was younger, I used to watch Rugby Union and I used to enjoy it. But actually, as I've gotten older, I enjoy it less and less. And I can't put my finger on why. Some of my favourite times as a kid growing up, well, I remember the World Cup, for example. Yes. When Johnny Wilkerson broke all yes, our hearts. I was going to say that moment. And that whole World Cup event was amazing. All the games yeah. were amazing. I was invested from start to finish. And then we had the, the liner years and the Campisi years. Yeah. And it feels like a different game now. Is it the fact that we were riding that success off the back of the Olympics and there was still that sort of aura of the fact that Sydney was hosting a a major tournament or Australia itself was hosting a major tournament but the momentum that rugby had during that period just hasn't gone and I don't know whether it's the fact that we couldn't win a Bledisloe Cup match to save our lives but it just seems that something has gone wrong along the way and it might take a little bit of backtracking for Rugby Australia to go back and think well hang on where have we gone wrong here we've lost the crowd because that moment that Johnny Wilkinson kicked that field goal, I was, mm. I think, eight years old and my lounge room was full of people. And I'll never forget that moment of being heartbroken. And I didn't even know any of the players. I think mm. I knew, you know, Larkham and a few others, but I wasn't really connected. I was an Aussie Rules kid growing up. Tony Lockett was my idol and this sort of rugby tournament had happened. And mm. it's the same with the FIFA World Cup the next year in 2002, sort of the connection is that sport has a really good chance through these World Cups to actually connect people and then build some real momentum through that as well. And on those ones, you don't have to win, but you just have to turn up. And for me, Rugby Union of late, with the exception of our Brumbies, of all the Australian teams, it's our Brumbies that I think are flourishing in this environment, which is surprising. All the other teams seem to be struggling. And I'll just give some stats here. In 2015, the average attendance was 17,000. Yeah. In 2019, have a guess what the average attendance is. It'd be under 10, I would say like 9,000. (laughs) That's exactly right. So that's nearly half. In five years, four years. So then Rugby Australia has to work out, or or rugby itself, Sansa, I don't think, markets the game. That's the governing body uh, here for Super Rugby. I don't think they market the game anywhere near as well as they could. The Brumbies games, I didn't even know they were on. And, you know, it's my job to know that Mm. they're on, outside of actually seeing the the Brumbies say that they're on. I think they started a game in February. Mm. And you go, oh, Super Rugby's actually on. This is surprising but as well as they're going they're still only getting seven and a bit thousand to their games and while they had a little bit of luck unluck lucky I should say with the the weather and and the like they're playing good rugby and everyone goes oh the rolling mall etc but they are playing exciting rugby but no one's going to watch it no and in fact they're were to pair him with the NRL to, which I thought was a great concept, yep. but we're not going to see that either. Right, we'll come back in just a moment and we're going to talk AFL with Eddie Williams. But before I do, I just have to tell you that one of the things that we're going to be doing each week is that Brent and I are going to discuss our greatest ever sporting moments going back from five to one. And we'll share number five with you a little bit later on. Resporting your place to call home on sports while this coronavirus situation continues on. We want to keep it as positive as possible and we want to keep all these sports that we love so much in the front and centre of people's attention. So bring us a bit of AFL each week. We bring in Eddie Williams. Eddie, hello. Hello and uh, good to be staying outside each other's protected areas, Brent and Jen. (laughs) No 50 metre penalties being being given away today. 
Well, maybe, yeah, that's exactly what the players could get used to is that this whole social distancing, the AFL just comes in and goes, well, maybe that's what you need to practice during a game. After this season, I never want to see an AFL player give away a 50 for being in the protected area. There is no excuse. Well, we were laughing so much about how when we did our last Raiders call team show about how they were having massive issues with the players hugging and shaking hands <laughs> after the game when they sat on top of each other, tackled each other, had face-to-face contact... And then afterwards, they couldn't shake hands. Anyway, so... I guess hands are a bit different to the rest of the body, I suppose. But yeah, the first AFL game of the season, and I guess one of the last at this stage, was Mm. Richmond v Carlton. And Richmond copped a bit of criticism for the way the players were high-fiving each other. And after the game, they did their huddle and sang the song as normal. So you saw in the games across the rest of the weekend, it was elbows being knocked. (laughs) And and the players didn't wrap arms around each other for the song. They sort of stood... It was much more like an NRL song, where they sort of stand in the change rooms banging things and hopping around. And it actually gave way to, particularly in the AFLW, a more freestyle uh, (laughs) dance sort of of thing in the team songs. It could be something we see more of. These are the innovations that the coronavirus is bringing to the game. Yeah, hopefully not so much on the field, but this would have been a really big weekend for Canberra if things had been as normal. It would have been huge. It would have been the biggest weekend of footy for the year. Friday night, this Friday, as you're listening to the podcast, if it comes out on the Friday, you would have had tonight's game, the Giants versus the Bulldogs at Marnica Oval. It would have been the first AFL game played there since the snow game last season when uh, the Hawks came to town and beat the Giants in what we believe was the first AFL match played in snow. would have been only the third Friday night game here in Canberra. And the first one was the Giants and the Bulldogs back in 2017. And they, they've built a rivalry. They played in that 2016 preliminary final where the Bulldogs just got over the line and then, of course, won the flag the week after. They played in the elimination final last season. There's been players that have gone between the clubs. Tom Boyd, probably most notable. So there's a rivalry there. It would have been a big game, regardless of where it had been played and what time. But to have primetime Friday night footy back in Canberra this weekend would have been great. Unfortunately, not this time, but we look forward to... The next time around. And then the Saturday, uh, the Canberra Demons would have kicked off their NEFL season. They would have been playing the Giants' NEFL side, and it would have been a, a good opportunity for them to try and kick off their home season strong. But now they're, well, they're just at home. Mm. It's very strange. It's very, very strange to think that now you look at the calendar and you go, oh, could have watched that football game or could have watched, you know. Well, that. you still can, though, because yeah. what the AFL's been doing and, and other codes are doing similar things is they're streaming essentially the same fixture. So they'll stream on Friday night or if they do what they did last weekend, they'll stream the JWS playing the Bulldogs and they'll pick a classic game. They'll probably pick that preliminary final, I would think. Got to pick we- Clay Smith's performance <laughs> in that yeah, preliminary right. final. that's yeah. right. And we saw it all across last weekend. They showed some of the, you know, they showed a classic showdown. They showed just about the only tight Geelong Gold Coast game, for example. <laughs> Um, <laughs> they managed to find Is the that one. the one where Harley Bunnell went off? Uh, it's the one where Mark Blitzavs kicks the, the sealer oh. at the end. It's not a well-known... There aren't many well-known Geelong <laughs> well, Gold Coast no, games. I'd be interested to know when they stream these games, whether they stream the, the team that they think is going to win, whether they play one of their winning yeah. matches or whether... They, well, I think they're just trying to pick a good game. They picked the Gary Rowan game for Sydney v Essendon, which would have been Friday night last week, where the Swans were down and out and somehow they kicked three goals in what seemed like the last 10 seconds. I loved it. Uh, Mark, Mark Rowan was the was the highlight, <laughs> the great call there from Bruce McEvaney. So I think people have been enjoying reliving some of these moments. Yeah, but... I, I know it's not the same. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I really am missing it profoundly. How is the AFL coping with their financial cutbacks and changes? Because they've been a sport that's actually been going from strength to strength, in my opinion, in the last couple of years, especially the embracing of the women's code. Yeah. And the- and that's one of the disappointing things is that the women's season ends unfinished. Poor you know, Freo. Just after one week of the finals, Fremantle had gone through the season undefeated and doesn't get the opportunity to push on for a flag, which would have been the first ever flag, men's or women's, in the, the history of that football club. And I forget your original question now, Jen, because I've gone <laughs> but, off on such but, a tangent. But- oh, the state of the game. Yeah, yeah I, I think the AFL has been in a, in a slightly better state than the NRL and rugby, but that hasn't led to any less dramas at the clubs and at the league with, with people being sent on leave. Chris Scott, the Geelong coach, has uh, volunteered to not be paid for the next period of time. Some supporters would be saying he should have done that years ago. Um, we've <laughs> seen Carl- 2011. <laughs> 
I wouldn't necessarily say that, but there's no, certainly people much. that would. Carlton has severed ties with the Northern Blues, its VFL side, so an end to the club that used to be known as the Preston Bullants after uh, more than 100 years of history. So we're seeing, you know, coaches admin staff in particular, similar to what we've seen with the Canberra Raiders, for instance, being sent home, whether that's on paid leave or unpaid leave. Well, this is what I'm interested in seeing because I saw headlines before mm. earlier in the week around uh, the job seeker yep. payments or the mm. job keeper, the job keeper payments you got to one or the other. But Someone suggested they should also have job lover. Then you could have, I forget the order, job lover, job seeker, job keeper. Jen will know better than me. <laughs> seeker, lover, keeper. That's right. That's the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Very nice. So all, all 18 clubs have applied for the mm. job keeper. Now, there's been a lot of talk about it on social media as to whether this is to try and subsidise player wages. Of course, no one actually knows whether or not the money that is, if you are successful in getting this job keeper money from the government, whether or not the money that you receive in your pay packet will have been a, a part of that or whether the business itself is using something else. So perhaps I'd like to give the AFL the benefit of the doubt in thinking that these job keeper payments, if they are successful in receiving it, because we do know that there will be a 30% downturn, that that would be used to pay the admin staff and the like and those who have been stood down rather than actually supplementing the, the players' salaries as well. Yeah, it's interesting. And look, I guess the AFL and all the other sporting codes are not that different to any other business at the moment. They're asking all those sorts of similar questions and going through the, the process of applying for these different payments and these different grants and so on. Obviously, the AFL players are going to have to take a pay cut and mm. have agreed to do that, essentially, after some debate about how much a pay cut that should be. I think ultimately they're workers they're part of the workforce just like everyone else in australia and they are going to take a hit yeah i think it's the 50 percent or something until or it's 70 percent of their pay that they'll have until july and then mm. if the season doesn't actually kick off then 50 percent for the rest of the year so they're in obviously better financial state than yeah. the nrl but Another issue is around yeah. the contracts. I think technically the players' contracts end in October in the AFL, but obviously there's talk of extending the season potentially all the way through through Boxing Day if it can be done and if it needs to be done. Whereas the women's contracts, I think, run out or you know would have run out about now. So that was one of the issues with the inability to reschedule the women's game. And another prop point is that underage players who this year would have been showcasing themselves, trying to get drafted for next season, are yeah. missing out on that opportunity. Yeah, and it's hard with well for NRL salary mm. cap situation then if in this lay period everyone's chops and changes then how do you justify what people are worth when they haven't been playing which is a mindset exactly yeah and do players retire someone like a a Gary Ablett Jr who I think everyone agreed would have been this would be his last season does he now go one more because he hasn't been on the field this is the other problem and all these people are throwing up these ridiculous Frankenstein seasons of 34 (laughs) games you have a Christmas break a best of seven finals grand final I don't know who thinks that's a good idea (laughs) I don't think we're going to get seven games at all I think if the season is to to happen and if you want it to be a legitimate season then you have to play at least everyone once yep and then the other suggestion yeah. is to split it into two conferences and no, have see, play play all this, the other teams within your stuff. conference. No, because you're a contracted. This is the problem because players <laughs> sign a contract to play in the AFL. They do. So that contract means that you play all the teams. You're contracted. If then suddenly the employer then chucks something in front of you and says, "Well, now you're part of Conference B, so you are the Brisbane Lions. So you have to play the Gold Coast, Fremantle, West Coast. We're going to have a Victorian." conference so none mm. of the teams have and whoever to, comes last yeah. has to move to Tasmania yeah so I mean this is this is this is I think we've problem. solved one of the great problems Everyone's, everyone is so bored that they're just trying to come up with different ideas for how it's going to work I think you've got to be creative though. if they want the season to be to be played it's going to have yeah. to be a very different it's like when they season. said oh which random player would you bring back from history that could still play the game like that's not like going to happen like the NRL 9s where they pull out you know Jason yeah. Croker comes Nick back. Davis plays for But one of the things that you're going to have to bear in mind is if this does start again and it starts to linger into when the World Cup starts, the actual places where... The access to the grounds. That's right. But I think this is a positive. I love the thought that some of these suburban grounds are going to get a run. Oh, 100%. And look, the AFLW has been a great success at grounds like Prince's Park in Carlton. The AFL, I think, has flagged that Marvel Stadium would probably host the grand final if the season, you know, finished after a certain date where cricket starts to use the MCG. 
The great thing, Jen, is that the ACT government only bid to be involved in the Women's T20 World Cup. So as far as we are aware, Monica Oval should be available for so the AFL is, later yeah, this year. The, That's brilliant. This is the whole th- this is the whole issue. Let's see, we'll have probably better detail on it. But what happens is if the T20 World Cup occurs later on this year and it runs, I think, from October or... Yeah, and or, still question marks over that as well, still question marks over yeah. that and whether or not... But if it does get off the ground and that does happen, well, then there's a real headache for, one, the NRL, who doesn't have their main stadium, which has been knocked down and we don't know when it's going to be <laughs> like rebuilt. Played in dirt, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, they play on rectangles, so it's probably easier for them. There's yeah. no real cricket unless you play in Eden Park. But... There was talk that Carrara or Metricon mm. would be the biggest stadium capacity available to the AFL to use. Well, Marvel would be bigger. But until, they're playing cricket there. Apparently. Yeah, until you get to the big bash. I don't think Marvel's hosting anything well, in that's the, a the World if Cup. Runs, if um, really? Oh, okay. I, th- I thought they must have had something World Cup-wise. But how long, does it, take, how long does it take for them to prepare the pitch? I mean, we saw it at the Gabba. The yeah, and it takes a while because really we had this issue here at the start of the year where there was no AFL women's game or AFL men's preseason game at Monica because mm. it was being used for the Women's T20 World Cup. And you yeah. can't just one day later dig the cricket pitch up and have the have it ready for AFL or mm. vice versa. Yeah, grass doesn't just grow in it. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but their drop-in pitches, oh, some of them that they do prepare way too quickly, you can get you the repercussions. <laughs> Well, the MCG has been a, been a main culprit Just of that. Just stick yeah, some is. mud down while playing Kolkata. But yeah, look, the <laughs> AFL's been keen for a long time on the Gold Coast, so why not? Oh. Grand final on the Gold Coast. Well, we might get unexpected extra bonuses as well here at Marnica because I think a lot of people would be... Let's see if we could actually pack the stadium yeah. to capacity. I mean, there'd certainly be a decent ground in every state if we look at it that way. So you could use Metricon in Queensland... Giant Stadium, I don't think, is holding any T20 World Cup, but they mm. do normally host the Big Bash. You've got Marnica in Canberra yeah. in a similar situation. Same with Marvel Stadium. You could use York Park in, in Launceston. You go back to use the Wacker. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, the Wacker or Subiaco. And Subiaco. head back to, if they didn't knock it down, and head back to, to Football <laughs> Park, Amy Stadium in Adelaide. Wow. There you go. All these grounds that have seen their heydays, like bringing the players bring back, back out of retirement. <laughs> bring them back. <laughs> Eddie, thank you. That, Thanks, that was Thanks, a Fred. very positive AFL discussion. I'm feeling very hopeful of what we're going to see here in Canberra at the very least by the end of this year. You're listening to Resporting. Resporting, time to touch on cricket. And it may feel funny to talk about cricket when there's no sport happening in the NRL, the AFL, and the rugby union, but the flow on effect for cricket is starting to occur right now. And to discuss more with us, we have Letsy. Letsy, hello. How are you? I'm very good, given the circumstances. How are you both? Good, We are fantastic. So this week was a milestone that I only realised at first because it came up on my Facebook feed. (laughs) It's two years since the uh, Steve Smith ban, which means officially he can now become captain of the Australian cricket team again. And interestingly, this is one of those questions that was posed to Tim Payne in the week and Payne basically, actually, let's see, he wasn't as anti it as I thought. He was much more nonchalant about the possible thought of Smith just coming back in and taking over. He was pretty positive, but at the same time, I don't know if it's necessarily going to happen before Tim Payne retires because Tim actually did endorse Steve Smith to become captain after he retires or decides not to captain the side anymore. But Cricket Australia actually sort of, I guess, training up a, some other leadership talent like Travis Head and Manus Lavishane actually is there as well. Pat Cummins is another option they might think about having as captain. But it would be hard to go past Steve Smith if Tim Payne retires and Steve Smith is still playing one. I mean... Since coming back after the sandpaper gate, Stephen Smith had an average of 73. Mm. So it's pretty ridiculous. And that's crazy given his average over the summer was only 36. So it's just proof that the ashes in England was really, really huge in terms of getting his numbers way up. Yeah, it did make a big difference. I don't know if you caught this one, Brent, but Tim Payne had a week to forget. What did he do? <laughs> he decided to make his home gym in his garage, social isolation and all. Got to, got to be keeping fit. So, <laughs> unbeknownst to him, he left his car out the front on uh, some scary Hobart streets. 
and <laughs> some thieves broke into his car, grabbed his wallet, and took it to the only place you would take a cricketer's wallet if you stole it. Maccas, because they were hungry. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> took it to... They took it to Maccas. Did they, did they not look in the wallet and see that it was Tim Payne, the Australian cricket captain's wallet, and not return it? I don't know. I think they might have just been after a fee. Maybe this is know. why they've locked down the whole state of Tasmania, because this stuff is this stuff is happening. It's, it's a bit like Gotham at the moment down there. They're going to have Batman roaming the streets of Hobart. Just back on the Steve Smith being able to, to be captain again. I find this whole situation awkward considering we might not be playing cricket for however knows long and now people are getting bored and people are starting to throw up scenarios and and what can actually happen. I'd feel a bit uneasy if I was Tim Payne, all these people saying, oh yeah, let's get Steve Smith captain. I actually felt like Steve Smith played better cricket when he wasn't captain, didn't have the pressure on him. But you raised that really good point that I wasn't aware of. His summer here was pretty ordinary. It was, but... He probably did play better cricket when he wasn't captain, but at the same time, like when he was leading the team, he was still scoring some the fair knocks, several hundreds when he was captain. As for now, obviously Tim Payne will continue. He's won ten tests with six losses and one draw, so it's a pretty good record. Considering a good portion of that was without Warner and Smith as well, it's going to be very interesting given what's going to happen with the Bangladesh series in June. Will we be going over there? Probably not. I can't Just see it happening. Way, There's mate. no way that's going to happen. And it hasn't been called off yet, has it? It's still... No, not that I It's know. still up in the air. As for now, it's going ahead, but no chance it will. They couldn't play it in the desert. Where does Pakistan <laughs> play their games? They play Abu in Dhabi. Abu Dhabi where there's no one. There's no risk of anyone getting infected then. <laughs> that's it. Just play it in the middle of the desert. Play a bit of beach cricket or something. Yeah, well, what about when they had the beach cricket a few years ago? There was that guy who used to play for England. He has no neck. Like, he, they, brought, they brought him out. They brought him out oh, to God, play. What was oh, his name? Can't think of his name. Neither can I, because he was the worst fieldsman. He was yeah, terrible. He could have moved. He could have. Speech cricket. Maybe. Well, you can't even go to a beach at the moment. No, so, I mean, that's no, outlawed as well. So, they're taking all our joy. Yeah, it's all ruled out at the moment. Interestingly, <laughs> though, so now that the Sheffield Shield's over, they've announced their sort of two top players. From the Sheffield Shield, one of which was Nick Maddinson, who's had a heck of a year. And the other one's Moses Henriques, who's had this massive career resurgence. What's your gut feeling, Let's see, Are we going to see a bit of Moses Henriques in the international team again? Well, <laughs> who knows, to be honest. His average is huge. I know. Like it's, it's, it's massive. It's over, over 60 in the Sheffield Shield season. So is Maddinson. Like, <laughs> it's very possible that we might see him make a return I guess but who do you drop for him I don't know but I have to just say you'll love this Brent that's my son's screensaver on his phone is Moses Henriques he loves what? it Moses. <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 a, it's a strange one because who do you drop and I don't know go back to Tim Payne and I hate to say but if he wasn't captain would he be the one who's dropped but then who plays keeper? I don't know. Well, they've got Wade. Wade So Wade could play keeper? Yeah. Is that the... Are you sacrificing glove work for that? I think that Payne's shown himself to be such a good leader that his flaws in terms of his batting at the moment haven't really been too much of an issue. Did I hear that correctly? Moses on regs was averaging 60 in the shield? <laughs> What? 60 I know. Plus. 60 plus. He's had this. Over how many games? Is, is that the a whole lot. season? They, they got the whole season in. And there was an amazing amount of double centuries, like had never been scored before across this season as well. But he had the twilight Sheffield Shield of his life. And, well, and he had a massive time to bring him back as well. Yeah, that's what I think too. Now's the I mean, time to bring him back if you are. Because, I mean, the Sheffield Shield, what would their average crowd Number B. Yeah, pretty low. So he'd be used to the the atmosphere. So if they play him out in the, if they play him out at Abu Dhabi, he's yeah. going to be fine. Yeah, we were talking about they're trying to keep themselves occupied, the cricket players as well. And I've been watching today some of the UK players on my social media feed. I've seen dancing. I've seen emceeing. I've seen all sorts of stuff from English cricketers that I don't ever want to see again. However, on a positive note, Joss Butler's been auctioning off his shirt to raise money. And I put to Letsy the ultimate question of if he could get one bit of cricketing memorabilia, what do you reckon, Letsy? What would be a priceless bit of memorabilia? Maybe something a little bit long lost. How about maybe Tony Gregg's key he lodged in the pitch? The last one ever. (laughs) Something like that. The last key. (laughs) 
This is the last time I'm going to put this key in the ground. <laughs> Makes me think of the Rest 12th man. Soul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that is something so left field because everyone thinks about the key, but I can't remember the last time anyone did that yeah. or put something in the deck and now they're just wrote. So maybe Tony has Gregg there, was keeping the curators honest. Has there been anyone else who have put anything in the pitch apart from Tony Gregg? We don't have keys anymore if you think about it. We have all these plastic things that wouldn't fit down there. So maybe we need a new thing to slot down there. That used to be my favourite thing. You'd oh, see the, the crack in the it? pitch and you go, oh, you could fit your key right in there. <laughs> Put it, you need bigger and, cracks if you want to fit the plastic and, and, It's just amazing. <laughs> bigger but what cracks. about Warnie the other? Warnie, Warnie, <laughs> Warnie's baggy green went for a, a million dollars, yeah. didn't it? The Combank bought that. Maybe I was a thinking, Don Bradman's bat or something. Steve was red rag. Yeah. But what I mean, about that, Warnie's mobile phone from the early 2000s? Oh, oh. a tin of his baked beans <laughs> that went to India. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that one of Booney's Yeah, one of the cans he yeah, drunk on the, on the that flight. flight. Anyway, there's I think there's some mileage. What in about this. a stash, some stash hair from his moustache? <laughs> <laughs> like Mitchell Johnson's Mo <laughs> Mitchell Johnson's Mo from the ashes shaved perfectly and framed. <laughs> Okay, I feel better already. I told Letsy of a challenge about the top five sporting moments of Ooh. all time. So Letsy's prepped with number five. Set the scene for us, Letsy. Look, my mind has been on cricket a fair bit. And as we were, as we were talking about before, Sandpaper Gate. But a little bit after that, for about six months after, we went to the UAE to play Pakistan. And the first test was probably one of the most amazing cricket moments which didn't result in a win for anyone. It was a test that really had everything, like batting collapses, really good bowling, and a bunch of other drama as well. For example, on the third day, Australia had one of our uh, signature batting collapses, 10 for 60. (laughs) (laughs) Which, at that point on the third day, you're not thinking it's going to be a draw. You're thinking of Pakistan. Easy win. But Kawaja batted for 300-plus balls in his second innings. And we got there with the help of Tim Payne and also Nathan Lyon. No, <laughs> yes. That's right. Yes. That's he, right. Had good, uh, he had a good knock of, it really was literally knocking it around because he wasn't exactly scoring. He was just trying to just keep in. Oh, that's a good one. I'd forgotten about that. I know, because that. that one went to pot quickly. That was the period of the awful abyss of cricket Well, that cricket was the we one where no one bidded on the rights, I That's think, right, for, yeah. for cricket. And Jeff Lemon and his mate actually bidded on the rights to be the broadcaster, the radio broadcasters for that Test Match series. It's quite incredible to think no one, mm. the first series. But isn't it funny, though? Other countries, this stuff happens and it's a one-match ban and us as a a country sort of came in and really heavy-handed. One of the things about this COVID experience is there's... I like watching NRL on the television, AFL on the television, but I love hearing cricket on the radio. Yeah. I've always really loved radio cricket commentary because some of the characters who are doing it are so funny with the banter that they go on behind the scenes. So... Technically, they could actually create fictitious cricket events and I would be so engaged in that. I think it's a good idea. What yeah. do you think, Let's see. Back when the ABC first broadcasted The Ashes, it was done by Telegraph and they just had a record on with the different sound effects. That's so we right. had a feed through the Telegraph and right. <laughs> they were just what? playing the sound effects like they were at the ground, even though they were just in Sydney or something, just broadcasting it. So, Imagine the work that went into doing that to well, make it's a bit it. like when they did the phantom calls of the Melbourne Cup. Mm. You could do something similar, but can you imagine someone sitting for five days and trying to plot out a test match? You could <laughs> you could plot out the perfect test match with the centuries, with the fantastic balls, with amazing catches, whatever story you want. But I think that's the, the beautiful thing about sport is that it's unwritten. So everything that happens on a sporting field everything that has gone before it is history and whatever happens is yet to be written. So if someone was there trying to write the perfect test match, I don't think it would be as good as the real thing, no matter how good you wanted it to be. Yeah, I think you're right. Let's, it's been great speaking to you. We'll chat again next week for some more cricket. Thank you. Free sporting. God, this is the best. 
fun. This is what we need sports-wise right now, just to keep everybody in the loop about their favourite sports. With Brent Ford at the moment, and as we promised at the start, we are going to have a look at our top five all-time sporting moments. Before we do it, I have to ask you a question. Yep. Eddie mentioned in the earlier stages about do you have to have actually been there? But for me, the bigger question is, did you have to have actually seen it live? No. No. So, Like on TV. Or you had to have been there when it happened rather than watch a replay six months later or next day. Well, it makes an interesting point. I feel like the the sporting moment for you is something that happens in the moment. Mm. So I think... One of the interesting things about KO and recent technology advances in broadcasting is that you can now pick up a game from exactly where you want to or exactly from the start, for example. So say I didn't see last year's NRL Grand Final, but I didn't know the score, and I went back and watched it, and I was like, oh, that moment where Tedesco scores is absolutely ridiculously amazing. Well, then... Technically, I think that counts, but you would have known the score if it's six months later. Yeah. I think if it's a day later, potentially, Mm. maybe overseas sporting moments, for example. So it's kind of live. Yeah, I I totally get that. With English Premier League, chances are we are going to watch it next day. If you're re-watching it the next day Mm -hmm. and you don't know what the score is, you feel something emotive in that moment, then I think that counts. Can I ask, do you have sports that are on overnight that the next morning you won't let anyone tell you the score of until you've watched it? Do you do that? I used to do it with AFL when I was a kid. Yeah. So now it's almost impossible to not know what the score is because we don't have that, do you see what I see? Mm. They used to do the halftime with Drew Morford and mm. and the like. They don't have that anymore. So I think maybe the EPL. Mm. But I've sort of drifted away now that it's not on Foxtel anymore. We'll have to talk about that next week too. The EPL's in all sorts of bother as well. For me, when I was growing up, I'm going to be honest here because you know I love Steve Waugh and I had this superstition that if I watched Steve Waugh while he was live, I would get him out. You've told me this before and it it blows me away, the thing that your favourite player... You didn't I watch. couldn't stand it. No one else in the family was allowed to watch him either because that was just... See, Dad had a superstition <laughs> when we were kids that he would wear like a lucky jersey. So when the Saints played, he yeah. brought this jersey out yeah. and he would wear it every single time that they played and he'd go, yeah, lucky shirt. So I think it was 2009, they went something like 17 straight and the one that they didn't win, we were actually on a coast trip. You're kidding. We were on a coast trip and um, we were coming back and it was, I think it was St Kilda Essendon and Nick Rewalt missed the goal to, I think, win the Saints the game and that was the first game they lost the season and then the next week they played North Melbourne and he, again, hadn't worn the shirt and we were like, Dad, you have to put the shirt back on. Oh, that's so funny. And for me also with the last grand final, about halfway through the second half, I just could not watch that game anymore. And, I mean, at that point in time, it didn't look like the Raiders were going to lose, but I still couldn't watch it. So I actually went out and drove. Till really? The, yeah, I just drove aimlessly till the game was over. I couldn't stand it. See, that for me, as a fan watching a live game, mm. as was unlike anything I've ever experienced. One, getting to do it with watching it with my mum. Yeah. Who, oh. So I think that was quite special despite not winning, but... I don't think I've ever celebrated anything at a live sporting event quite like that Jack White and try that he scored. Yeah. And it's just it's something that, despite the fact that the Raiders didn't win, it's just one of those days where you look back and you just go, yeah, I really miss that. I agree. And also, I mean, one of the big things about that grand final is that the Raiders were in it every single second of every single minute of that yeah. whole game. And it's awful when you go to a grand final, like the last year's AFL grand final, and the other team's just not in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not, there's not that spectator event. Anyway, top five sporting Ooh. moments of all time. Shall I go first? Ooh. Actually, I'll go first. All right. Okay, so my I had a really tough time trying to, to pick my top five because I follow a lot of different sports. So, of course, my memories are all of different things but this one is from the AFL Mm -hmm. so we go back to 2005 Sydney in trouble at the SCG against Geelong in steps a man Nick Davis of course everyone so 
oh, just I go back and I think about it and I think as someone who was only 11 at the time, it just sticks in my brain so vividly the fact that Geelong had this game and I just think of it as the most incredible performance of any player, sporting, whatever the like. The fact that seven goals were kicked each side and Nick Davis kicks four for the Swans all in the final quarter of a game that they shouldn't have won. They were not even close. If you went to Sydney Swans history, if you had a, a history of things that they would put in a museum it would be Leo Barry's hands from the mark that he took in the grand final and it'd be Nick Davis's left foot because I go back and I think I watched this footage in the lead up to to picking my top five moments I watched all my top five moments over and over and over and over again but it just happens so perfectly the tackle is laid there's a ball up Jason Ball against Cameron Mooney who of course Stephen King wasn't on the field at the time because he injured himself and it was likely that the Saints who the Swans played in the prelim final were licking their lips they're going to play Geelong there's no Ruckman they're going to be fine they're going to create history just the perfect tap and no one is on the outer side of the pack and Nick Davis who had just done so many ridiculous things in the final quarter some of his marks they took with the one hand he snaps from absolutely nowhere and the crowd is just going crazy it is yeah. it's so mid-2000s it's not even funny there's people just jumping on each other there's no real jerseys or anything in the crowd it's people are huddled in jumpers and the iconic sign you know nick davis come to save us and save us is spelled s-a-v-i-s i don't even know if that banner was made during the game or whether it was something that occurred at, at some point in the final quarter but it, it's so iconic and Anthony Hudson's commentary of being a Geelong supporter and being like, I see it, but I don't believe it. Mm -hmm. And he's talked about it being the fact that as a Geelong supporter, you you couldn't imagine this. And I didn't want to bring it up while Eddie was here because it just breaks his heart as he would have just been, he would have been the same age as I was when the game occurred. And for me, just in pure sporting from... Being a neutral watching that and someone who really disliked the Swans as well as a a kid, that for me was just like you went out in the backyard the next day and you were trying to kick the ball. I'm a left footer and I was trying to like throw the ball down onto my left foot and try and kick it out of midair in the same way that Nick did and you still do, you still think about it. I went on Nick Davis's Twitter page two days ago and it was his (laughs) birthday and he actually re-watched the game and... You couldn't blame it because for me, I just think, wow, the fact then that that led the Swans on to the most, you know, a prelim final against the Saints, which they won, and then one of the most iconic grand final victories to break the South Melbourne drought. And I think it all sort of started off the momentum of Nick Davis doing what he did in that final quarter and kicking that goal. For me, it's probably a bit stiff that it's at number five, but... That's my number five moment. Nick Davis, four final quarter goals. And I love also that it wasn't a grand final moment. And that's, funnily enough for me, a lot of my moments are not the pinnacle moment in the grand final. It's the lead up to before then. I hear you. Right, well, mine, surprisingly, my number five is an Olympic moment. Ooh. And it's going to be so way out of what you're going to expect but it's been one that I like you I went back and I've watched all of mine again too and I watched this again and I got all the goosebumps and in fact the house came around me and like what are you watching that's got you so emotional because it was full on I'm taking you to Beijing in 2008 and I'm taking you to the pool but not the swimming pool the diving of all I think I know what this is Matt Mitchell yes And I love this moment so much. And I don't even know why I was watching it. I'm now getting the goosebumps as well because I know exactly. Okay, China had won every gold medal in the pool. Every medal. All of them, yeah. Yep. And we had not gone in with any expectations of getting a medal. Mitchum even said himself he thought if he got a bronze, that would have been like peak career moment for him. Yeah. Anyway, his second dive, he was scoring nine and a half and tens, which is phenomenal for an Australian. But of course, the Chinese were up there as well. And then I'll just skip forward. Mitchum wasn't really paying attention to where he was in the standings. He was paying attention to his scores. 
and he was doing well. He had a couple of sort of eight dives, but getting into the last one, to have any chance to get a gold medal, he had to do the perfect dive, right? Yeah. And there were two Chinese guys who were in the gold and silver medal position, and one of them dived before him, and Mitchum said he'd been totally not phased by anything at this point, but when that first Chinese guy did his dive, he slightly flubbed it. And you could hear, because you can imagine that was totally not impartial crowd, the crowd went, oh, rather than, whoa, you yeah, know, and he yeah. knew and he knew that something was afoot then. He's like, no, 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 can't think about it, can't think about my standing, just have to focus on the moment. So he gets up to do his dive, and you could see he was just, he was in the zone, and you know how you watch these moments? And I remember watching it at the time and I thought he can't, he can't do it. There's no way he's going to pull in this critical moment the perfect dive out. We just don't do that. That doesn't no, happen. it doesn't. And he went into the pool and, I mean, I have no idea of like what it takes to be a perfect dive. But even I, I went, when he went into that pool and landed, I was like, oh, my God. He's done it. Like he's fully, that was, there was nothing wrong with it. There was, I, oh God, I'm getting so excited. I'm getting like <laughs> He literally hit the water so perfectly. He I remember did. I remember watching this as a 15-year-old and staying oh. up in high school and I remember it exactly how you sort of said the Chinese audience had just sort of thrown everything and I almost felt like Matthew was going to cry. Yeah. He almost felt like when he was on the the block, you were just like, it's just not going to happen. No, It just isn't going to happen. It's just not how these things had panned out at this game. So he gets out of the pool and he's getting nine and a halfs and tens. And in fact, that last dive was not only his personal best, but was the highest score of anyone in any dive in that entire Olympics. It's amazing. It's amazing to do it under that sort of pressure. And it goes back to the best, thing about sport is it's so unscripted it just happens in front of you and sometimes it it happens in a way that you just can't believe it but the Mitchum dive Uh, that dive and then so there was one further Chinese guy had to he had to basically match the standard of what yeah and he just slightly flubbed it and it's such a tiny thing because even when he went in the pool I thought is that enough you know I wasn't certain but the crowd had done that whole Ah, you know that. Yeah, they give it away almost. They do, and anyway, when that moment came and Mitchum found out he'd got the gold medal, he just started to cry, and I, I remember, like, I couldn't help myself. I just sobbed my heart out because it came out of nowhere. He was such an unlikely competitor, and that whole thing was just perfectly scripted up until that last dive. That was so extraordinarily amazing, and it, and that moment has stuck with me all these years since, has been one of the pinnacle Olympic moments for me. It's right up there, absolutely. Well, top five. Yeah, so that's my number five. And I'm going to go all over the place with sports, like you, because I love a good sporting moment, but I've really harnessed that. I love that underdog moment where something happens that you least expect. We've had a few good ones of those in the Olympics as well. Yes, the ice skating moment, the speed skating moment's not going to feature in my five. Like, I love it, and it's got a lot of theatre to it, but it's not one of my top five, although I do love to watch it whenever it comes up as a favourite. I think of it more, it's not going to make my top five either, but Stephen Bradbury, that is just, I think of that, Sort of almost as like just the iconic Aussie thing, you know, just keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. Even if you're not the best at what you do, just keep doing it because you never know what's going to happen. And that just sums up for me Australian culture is that we just do whatever we do and, you know, it's all going to work out. And that for me just, oh, I still laugh about it. It's so funny. (laughs) It's so brilliant to to watch. You you train for four years go around in a, in a circle ice skating. It's terribly hard. I can't skate around an ice rink, so I have no idea how they go as quickly as they do. But, wow, to think four years of your hard work goes off someone clipping you on the back of your heels, it's, it must be devastating. And I don't know whether they've actually interviewed the skaters that fell over. Yeah. I know there's been a lot made of Bradbury and his moment, but, wow, you'd hate to think how those other skaters feel about what went down yep anyway I can't wait to hear the rest of your four and that's re-sporting we're going to do it every week keep you up to date with what's happening in the various sports around the place and we'd love to hear your favourite sporting moments too maybe you can put together your top five list thank you Brent this week thank you I love it